Good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today is a Sunday that we celebrate once a year called Good Shepherd Sunday. It's always the fourth Sunday after Easter, and it's always this invitation in a different set of scriptures every three years, but always this invitation to meditate on what it means that Jesus is our Good Shepherd and what it means that we are his sheep. But there's sort of a danger in this metaphor of shepherd and sheep that, for one, it is so familiar that it can kind of stay at a safe distance from us. It can kind of stay just a metaphor, something that's kind of in our imaginations but doesn't really touch the ground. And then there's also the danger that because this metaphor has to do with stuff that is just not part of our life, sheep and shepherds and that whole lifestyle, that we also just keep it at this distance and we never really grasp what it means for us. So to try and help with that and to bring this metaphor a little closer, I wanted to just start by talking about sheep and shepherds and how things worked back in Jesus' time and place. And actually, a few years ago, I was in Israel and the West Bank, and I saw sheep and shepherds up close and learned, actually, they do things pretty much the same way they did them back when this text was written. So there's a lot of continuity there. But in Jesus' time and today, shepherds and sheep would, or just shepherds, not sheep, they don't have opposable thumbs, they would build these sheepfolds. So it would be an enclosure with a sort of a stone wall, up pretty tall. So not, we have a little sheepfold in the atrium, it's a little lower than a real sheepfold would be. And they would put at the top of these stone walls briars or thorns or broken pottery, anything sort of sharp to keep intruders out. And there was only one way in and out of the fold, and that was through the gate. Again, that's to keep intruders out. And they would build these sheepfold in the village, attached to houses, so that the sheep of villagers would have a place to sleep for the night. But they would also build them out in the countryside, so the places where they took their sheep far out to pasture would also have a safe enclosure. And so at night, whether they were out in the countryside or in the village, multiple shepherds would bring their flocks together into the safety of the sheepfold. And that is where they would stay protected through the night from thieves if they were in the village or from wild animals if they were out in the hills. And that is what Jesus is talking about in John 10 when he talks about coming in and out by the gate, when he talks about thieves coming and stealing. And then in the morning, after the sheep have rested safely for the night, the way the shepherds would separate out their sheep was really simple. A shepherd would come out of the gate, and he would just call his sheep. Now, these were small flocks, so some shepherds would actually name all of their sheep, or they might just name one or two sheep that loved to stay really close to them, or they might have a particular song that they sang their sheep that said, hey, it's me, it's time to go. They might have a particular call, but it was the shepherd's voice and nothing else that separated the sheep. They weren't tagged, they weren't branded, they weren't identifiable by sight. They identified and separated themselves because they knew their shepherd's voice. And Jesus describes that in today's passage. He says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
So sheep knew the sound of their shepherd's voice so well, so intimately, and they trusted it so much that most of the time, Palestinian shepherds would actually lead their sheep from in front of them just by their voice. It was really rare for them to drive them from behind with a rod or something. They would save that only for the most dangerous situations where they really needed maybe extra guidance in something particularly tight or high. Most of the time, sheep were out ahead, just guiding by their voice. And so for the shepherd, or for the sheep, their whole life was wrapped up in the sound of the shepherd's voice. There was no voice they trusted more. There was no voice they knew better. There was nothing that made them more secure, that guaranteed that they would be taken care of than that voice. They loved the voice of their shepherd. And when I was little, my sister and I used to spend weekends at our grandmother's because my parents would be working and they were going back to school. And so on Sunday nights, my parents would come and pick us up from my grandmother's house. It was about 30 minutes away from our house and we would drive back home. And I remember the feeling of being in the back seat. And I was a kid who had trouble sleeping, so this is unusual for me, but I remember being sort of lulled to sleep on that car ride back home by the sound of my parents' voices in the front seat. I couldn't hear what they were talking about. They were only talking to each other. But the way that parents just dip into that low, familiar talking to one another, I found it so safe and so soothing, and I always just drifted off to sleep. And the shepherd's voice is like that, but more. And all through the season of Easter and before this, the season of Lent, we've been reading our text through this lens of hearing God. How do we hear his voice? How do we listen for his voice? How do we come to recognize what it sounds like? And today's passage in John's Gospel probably gets at that question more than anything else we've read. How do we learn to follow the shepherd's voice only and no other? How do we resist the voices of strangers that call to us? This is really the whole thing of our life as followers of Jesus, to stay in his fold, to know his voice, to go where he leads. But sometimes discerning that voice also means knowing what it doesn't sound like, knowing what it feels like outside the sheepfold, knowing what something other than shepherding feels like. And so I actually want to spend just a moment debunking a common shepherd-sheep myth that's been floating around, and I'm curious if you have heard it. So raise your hand if you've ever been in a Bible study or heard a sermon or some other something where you've heard that shepherds would break the legs of sheep who strayed. Yeah, maybe raise them higher so we can all see them. <laughs> Not to call you all out. Yeah, for some reason, this myth has taken hold, this idea that if a sheep strayed, the shepherd would go after it and break its legs so that they would have to carry it close and maybe rebuild a bond of trust, something like that. And this has become sort of pervasive in the church, but the problem is it's just not true. It feels like maybe it ought to be true because it gives us a really convenient answer for why something bad happens to us, or maybe if we have the consequences of bad decisions, we can just say, oh, 
I'm going through something difficult because the shepherd broke my legs for my good. But this is not what shepherds do. It's just not what shepherds have ever done. There is truly no evidence anywhere that this has ever been a practice now or ever. And if you ask a shepherd in the Middle East, they will look at you like, are you kidding me? That would be terrible. The whole origin of this idea seems to be one sermon by one imaginative American preacher back in the 50s and who used it as an illustration and it got picked up and put in an encyclopedia of 1,001 sermon illustrations for pastors that was used in seminaries in the 70s and 80s, and it might be on the bookshelf of a pastor you know. Somehow, it's like a game of telephone. This wrong idea found its way into all of these popular ideas of what shepherds and sheep do. But it's not just wrong about shepherds and sheep. It's also wrong about Jesus, the Good Shepherd, and that's why I'm spending time on this thing that's not in the Bible. Because for all the scriptures, and there are a lot in the Old Testament and in the New, but especially in the prophets, for all the scriptures that talk about bad and good shepherds, the only ones that hurt the sheep are the bad shepherds, the thieves, the enemies of the flock. The Good Shepherd does not cause suffering for sheep in his care. He takes their suffering on himself. He lays down his life for them. And God does not come after us to break our legs. God does not coerce us into trusting him or following him or staying close to him by force. God is not the author of our pain and suffering. God is the enemy of suffering. And he came to take that suffering on himself, to be with us in our suffering, and then to undo it once and for all. And that's actually really clear if we look at the broader context of today's Good Shepherd passage. Because this is actually a conversation that happens in the middle of a much bigger story that starts back in John chapter 9. And we actually read this story a few weeks ago during Lent, It's the story of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind, and he spits in the dirt, and he makes mud, he rubs mud on the man's eyes, sends him to go and wash, and when he does, his sight is restored. He can suddenly see. He's been healed. And in that story, the healing of this blind man made the religious authorities really mad. They were mad because Jesus healed on the Sabbath, so it looked like he was breaking the law. And they were mad because they thought this man's blindness had to be a punishment for someone's sin somewhere, his or his parents or someone's. This has to be God's sort of eye-for-an-eye punishment for wrongdoing. It's kind of sheep-leg-breaking theology that they're following, that if something is going wrong, there must be someone to blame. God must be doing this as a consequence. So for Jesus to heal this man's blindness was this almost blasphemous thing to do because it wasn't just giving him sight. It was disrupting this whole system of who we blame for suffering and disability, and it was forgiving sin in their mind. So they were mad. And then they stayed mad because after this man was healed, 
The blind man just wouldn't go along with what they wanted him to do. They didn't want this to disrupt the peace, so they tried to get him to downplay what happened, to change his story a little bit, just soften the whole thing, but he wouldn't. The man didn't understand everything about Jesus or everything that had happened, but he insisted, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. And he worships Jesus as Lord. From what little he knows and has experienced, he can't help it. His only response is worship. And so the response of the religious leaders is to kick this man out of the synagogue, to cut him off from worship, to cut him off from the community of faith. And that is what has just happened when Jesus starts talking about sheep and shepherds. So when Jesus is talking here about thieves who only come to steal and kill and destroy, he's actually calling out those religious leaders. He's actually adding them to this long line of bad shepherds that the prophets have been warning about through all these generations. And then when Jesus says, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is saying that even though these leaders thought they could kick this man out of the fellowship of the people of God, out of the sheepfold, that actually they are not the doorkeepers of the sheepfold. They and their judgments are not the doorway in and out to a relationship with God. Jesus is. And the blind man has come through Jesus the door. He has entered into true worship, and true community, and the true safety of the sheepfold. But going through that door has not been easy for him. No one celebrates that he has his sight. Instead, these enemies immediately swoop in. They interrogate him, they question him, they accuse him, they call him a sinner and a liar, and they shun him. But what he has found in Jesus is more valuable to him than what he has lost. He has found his true shepherd. He is at home in the sheepfold, and that's enough for him. Well, all of today's scriptures, not just John's gospel, have this sense that the life of a sheep isn't just grazing happily on clover on a sunny hillside. All of these passages are actually full of threats and dangers. In John's gospel, there are these thieves and strangers and enemies. In the psalm, there's the valley of the shadow of death and the presence of enemies. In 1 Peter, there are these systems of injustice and oppression and this unfair treatment to just be endured. And in the Acts reading, we see Stephen, a sheep of Jesus' own fold, stoned to death even as he prays for forgiveness for his killers. To be Jesus' sheep is to live in this world of dangers and toils and snares as we'll sing about in a little bit. It doesn't mean being plucked out of the world, but it means moving through that world in a different way, trusting God to give us what we need, even abundantly, in the presence of our enemies, not having to extract what we need from them, not having to oppose them, not demanding that they give it to us, being a sheep means following a different voice, trusting a different source of nourishment and security, trusting in the abundance of the life that Jesus is offering.
And at the center of the sheep's life is this experience of having all our desires abundantly fulfilled. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he doesn't mean I don't want anything. Sheep want lots of things. They want safety and companionship and green pasture and still water. I shall not want doesn't mean I've just numbed out all my desires. It means I have found everything I wanted fulfilled in my shepherd. Sheep are just inherently wanting creatures. They are creatures of instinct more than intellect, creatures of hunger and thirst and habit. They go where the shepherd's voice leads them because that's the voice that takes them to everything they want. And we don't necessarily think of ourselves like this, but that is how we are too. We are not at our core just intellectual creatures who make rational decisions. We are at our core wanting creatures, desiring creatures, hungering and thirsting creatures. At our deepest level of motivation, we follow whatever voice leads us to what we want the most. And so the key to following the voice of our Good Shepherd is loving and wanting that voice. It's loving being in the sheepfold more than what it's like outside. It's loving the security and the nourishment that he offers us. And the only way to train this wanting is just through habits. It's kind of a boring process, actually. But, but what we do again and again and again is what trains us to want what is good for us, what our shepherd wants for us, to want his voice more than the other voices. The writer Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. What we do with this hour and with that one is what we are doing. And so I want to close by inviting us to spend this hour and that one and this day and that one and our whole lives becoming better acquainted with the shepherd's voice, forming a habit of listening to it. And the tools we have are just the boring, old, familiar tools of the church. Prayer, scripture, silence, worship, celebrating, particularly when we do them together, because sheep live in flocks. It's a communal life. So these are habits that we cultivate together so that the shepherd's voice is the loudest and truest voice, the most familiar one, the one we trust the most. And as I was thinking about this this week, I think one of the voices of strangers that particularly calls us away in our particular age is the voice of distraction. So I want to particularly encourage us, and I'm preaching to myself more than anyone, to learn to resist the pull of distraction, to learn to recognize distraction as the enemy of our souls that it can be, to notice the anxious feeling that it stirs in us instead of the settled rest in the shepherd's sheepfold, and to again and again and again as a habit turn back to the voice of our shepherd.
Over a lifetime, we become people who are not driven by the stick, but who are drawn by the voice of the shepherd into more abundant life, even with our enemies. So we'll take our usual moment of silence. And as we do, I just invite you to pay attention. What voices are louder than the shepherd's voice? Where are you seeking refreshment in pastures other than the ones he's leading you to? Where are you finding security outside the sheepfold? Let me pray for us. Jesus, our good shepherd, we long to hear you and to love you and to follow you. Would you help us be people who say, the Lord is my shepherd. All my wants have been fulfilled. Amen.